So growing up in Nashville, top chef star Carla Hall was surrounded by soul food, especially dishes cooked by her beloved grandma. She loved eating it, but she had no real interest in cooking it. In fact, she headed into the world of business, building a career in accounting when a couple years in, in a moment of awakening, and we talk about this, she took this hard left turn that took her through runway modeling in Europe, cooking and catering in DC, and eventually, years later, onto Bravo's Top Chef, where her amazing and joyful energy and sense of possibility, it just kind of captured the hearts of viewers. And that launched her into the world of not just food and restaurants, but media and books with her latest cookbook, Carla Hall, Soul Food, Every Day in Celebration, and TV with so many appearances all over and a run co-hosting The Chew, and now podcasting with her hit show, Say Yes with Carla Hall. Carla's also super active with a number of foundations that really reflect her passion for causes close to her heart, like Helen Keller International. And she's also the culinary ambassador for Sweet Home Cafe at the Smithsonian National Museum for African American History and Culture in Washington, DC, where she brings attention to the history of food that has inspired the cafe. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're in D.C. right now? I'm in D.C. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I grew up in Nashville. It's funny because I think if you're not from Nashville, most people probably think of it as, you know, the town that music built. And it's all about music. But Nashville has this stunningly rich food history at the same time. And I think when people think about sort of like the food scene in Nashville now, it's, it's the foodie scene. It's like exploded. But it's not like that's a new part of Nashville. Agreed. Agreed. My mother's always saying, yes, we're the it city. I'm like, yeah, mama. Um, but I also feel like growing up in Nashville and having these small restaurants and also the history of how restaurants were built in terms of getting recipes from black cooks. There's also that whole thing. You know, and then there's the the barbecue and there there the biscuits. There I mean, there are so many different parts of Nashville. There's hot chicken, hot fish, you know, there are all of these different things that we grew up having that now the rest of the world is like, Oh, Nashville has that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've always had that. Yeah. Nashville hot chicken, right? The legend of Thornton Prince the third. <laughs> yes, yes, the third. <laughs> right. Um but you just brought up something which was one of the things that you shared was uh, black cooks and uh -huh. then sort of like what happened with their creations. Uh -huh. 
Tell me more about that. I'm curious. When I was talking to my dad, and my dad was a professional waiter, and he talked about, he worked at the Bellmead Cafe, and it was in Bellmead, and it was a prestigious, when I say prestigious, it was a cafe where you go through the line and the waiters all dress dapperly, would take your, bring your food to your table. But there are all of these black cooks in the background. And my dad said in order to work there, a lot of the times they would have to give their recipes to the owners. And so if you weren't sharing your recipes, you weren't working there. And that happened in a lot of places. And when you think about recipes being called receipts, that's where it comes from. And they never got credit for it. You know, there may be a cookbook coming out of Bellmead cafeteria, but were those the recipes of the owners? No. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, there's all this mythology around the world of food, um, and especially restaurants. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the mythology is almost always around what is very often a bold figure in the front. Who's either the owner, the executive chef, sometimes the same person and everyone else that makes that place hum usually is eliminated from the story, from the history, from the mythology, you know, like from the forward facing thing that we tell about all of this. Um, I didn't know that about restaurants. Like I'm sure it's not just Nashville, but like all across the South too, mm -hmm. probably all across the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you think about the, um, some of the older cookbooks, if you couldn't, if you could cook, but you couldn't write, who are you dictating those recipes to? You know, the lady of the house. And then she turns and writes the junior league cookbook, <laughs> you know? So uh, it's really interesting. And, and a lot of this information that I got, I mean, some of it for my dad, but also um, the Jemima Code, Tony Tipton Martin with her cookbook and reaching back to tell some of these stories and, and really revere some of these old cookbooks from Black Cooks. It's, it's, it's a really interesting story. And I think it's not just our story, but it's, it's one of those stories that you want to uncover for all cultures, right? Just the curiosity of like, where do our recipes come from? Yeah. I mean, especially because recipes tend to be, it's not just food, you know, it, it is sort of like almost like a DNA level expression of history and culture, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and communion and all these things. So understanding not just like how does it make you feel when it goes in your mouth, you know, like, but actually where did this come from is, is I think it's kind of fascinating, but I think it's also important. Yes, yes. But we all borrow from each other. If you say something and I like the way you said it, the next time I say something similar, I'm like, oh, I remember how Jonathan mentioned this thing. And then I color my words that way. And then and so on and so on and so on. And food is the same way. So it doesn't exclusively belong to any one group. But I think the the trick is to how do you credit people along the way? Yeah. Um Austin Cleon steal like an artist, right? It's, it's uh -huh. like, we all do. But yeah, and, and how do you credit it along the way if you're three or four or five or ten people removed and you actually don't know what the along the way it was. You right. know, and I think that's where you're talking about like it's amazing to now have people who are devoting themselves to, to tracing it back. So we can actually find that out and find out, oh, wow, like these are the people who helped me do this thing today. Yeah, maybe a hundred years ago or 50 years ago or three generations ago. Right. Um, you grew up in a household also. I know um, grandma, he called granny, legendary cook herself. <laughs> um, the, the classic glorified grits, as I know you used to call it. Yes. But so you were around it in your own house too. But but for you, at an early age, like this wasn't a thing for you. It wasn't a source of fascination or interest until much later, really. I mean, you know, and people always assume that I wanted to cook from an early age. No, I wanted to eat. I wanted to be at the table of you know with this good food. I was out playing. I'm like, call me when the food is ready, and I will come a running. But I had no interest in how it came together. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I'm like, wait, I have no idea how this food comes together, you know, and, and how is it that I could be living every single Sunday with Sunday suppers at my grandmother's house after church and not know how it all comes together. 
But, you know, when you're ready, when you're ready to get the information, you turn to it and you're like, okay, I need the information now. Yeah, you can't push it. Uh, mm-hmm. It happens when it happens. Because mm-hmm. I know you also describe yourself as a kid um, as being a nerd. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And also being really shy for sort of like the earlier part of your life, which is kind of funny because I think from the outside looking in, a lot of people would look at you today and look at this big public career that you built over the last, you know, like a couple of decades now almost. And I think, well, how is that possible? (laughs) I know. And, you know, I'm borderline introvert, extrovert. Mm, I was curious about that. Yeah. And even when I... I was so shy. I didn't really talk. I always had gregarious friends. So I was used to be around gregarious people who would speak up for me. You know, I would be in the background. They're like, leave Carla alone. You know, come on, Carla. I would be that person. And my husband is an introvert. But if I had to, the thing was, I loved comedy and I loved laughter and I loved joking. But you would only see that side of me when I was around people whom I was comfortable with. And even now, if I, I remember going back to a homecoming at Howard University where, where I went to school and I went to a party with a friend and in walking through that door, I felt like a freshman. I am 50 years old, but I immediately felt like a freshman where I was self-conscious. I was just very much aware of everyone. I'm looking around. I wanted to go to the corner of the room, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I am, am, am I that person? But I think we're always, we carry little bits of ourselves around when, and they will show up and you have to remind yourself or you have to live that moment truthfully, however you're feeling. But you know, sometimes I do have to talk myself up into being okay in the room. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, it's, it's so interesting the way we snap back also into sort of like our, you know, like original social modes. Um, I, I went to a 30th high school reunion a couple of years back and I, and, and I was, you know, like I, I'm, I'm on the introverted side of the spectrum for sure. And I was a quieter kid there, um, you know, and immediately I walked in and it was like, they're the jocks, like they're the greasers, you're like they're the nerds. And I'm this sort of like freaky kid who like is okay in each one of those different crowds, but not entirely comfortable in any of them. And I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? Right? You're like, snap out of it. You are a successful man, you know, 30 years in your senior from this person, you know, who's like, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. They're the jocks. And yeah, it, it's it's all of that. But I think it also is a cue for us to realize the things that either ha- that haven't healed within us or that um, we have buried, you know. So in that moment, sometimes maybe not in that particular moment when I was in the room, but to actually feel what I'm feeling so I it can come up and out and get out of that thing, get out of my body. Yeah, I so agree with that. It's it's so funny you mentioned that also. Um, I have a fairly long-standing meditation practice, and and literally about twenty minutes into that experience, I found myself sort of saying, "Wait a minute," almost sort of like taking like like a meta lens, zooming out a little bit, and like looking down into it. I'm like, "What is really happening here? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the truth?" And I'm and I'm realizing, oh, I'm actually seeing these people as their nineteen-year-old and eighteen-year-old selves. And and then I was like, okay, so let me look with fresh eyes. And then I'm looking around the room. I'm like, oh, this is a completely different scenario here than the one that I transposed over it, which is utter fiction. It's sort of like right. my past illusion that I'm reliving today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you end up in Howard in business school, but but before getting there, I know when you hit high school, you also become pretty drawn to acting. Like, yes. I'm curious, what was it about that that spoke to you? Well, I went to my first play uh, on Broadway called Bubbling Brown Sugar. And my uncle happened to be like in the chorus of this play. And there was this song that one of the actors was singing and it was Nobody. And I don't even remember the words. It was like, blah, 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 blah. Nobody. You know, blah, 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 blah. Nobody. And when I went home, I was fascinated by these characters. And I was, I was 11 years old. 
And I was fascinated by these characters. And I went home for the next month and I became this character. And I think it was stepping outside myself and putting on a character. And so that's what I kept doing. And my mother was like, Carla, I need you to clean up your room. Who wants to clean up their room? Nobody. I mean, she was like, <laughs> and then a month later, she put me in theater and I loved it. And I remember them saying, dare to be you, dare to be different. And I could try on any personality I wanted to try on. And it wasn't a shy person. It could be whomever. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, when, when you're doing that also because i know you know like one of there's an ethos that tends to be pretty front and center in your life which is like you're you in all parts of your life (laughs) you know like in this conversation on tv and you know like at a dinner whatever it is it's just you get what you get um you are who you are do you connect that in any way to those really early years where they're just kind of like saying like that's the way to be 100 percent. i think theater was, I remember just doing all of these exercises when I would go to theater camp and we were accepted. And I feel as though theater saved me from being bullied because people want to tease you and they're like, you're weird. I'm like, oh my God, really? That's awesome. You know? (laughs) So I would, I was freely the weird kid. And because somebody was on the other side in theater affirming that that was okay. And I walk through life like that. I'm like, I am showing up as myself when I did the chew. And I'm not saying that I'm not insecure about doing a job that I don't know. But when I was, I was saying to myself, oh my gosh, how is it that I got this job? And my friend said, your job is authenticity. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. My job is to be who I am. They chose me. And so whenever I walk into a new situation, if I'm invited somewhere, I'm like, I'm invited to be myself. And I have to remind myself of that sometimes. I, I'm not going to be anyone else because anyone else would have been invited instead of me. So I, I have that tape going on in the back of my head. Yeah. So I know you're able to access that um, more readily now. When you show up the first day at Howard B. School, are you just like, yeah. This is, I'm Carla, I'm weird, I'm here, let's do this. Or you, <laughs> what happens? Okay. So I'm looking if you at know, your face. People can't see your face right now, but if they could. <laughs> my head drops back, my eyes roll up. I'm like, uh, no. Okay, I'm putting myself back in that moment. Now, know that I am leaving from Nashville, Tennessee, which is about 25% black. I am coming to the Chocolate City, Washington, D.C., which at the time was 60, 75 percent black. And um, I come up in overalls. I had um, cowboy boots. I'm like, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to wear my overalls. I'm going to have cowboy boots. And I am at this school where people will say there are a lot of, quote unquote, bougie blacks. So they have on high heels, they're dressed really nicely. And they're like, what in the heck are you wearing? And I'm like, huh? And I, I felt so small. I was like, what? What? I wasn't ready. I remember just looking left. I'm like, look at all of these black people. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Like, oh, my God, look at all these black people. And people would just toot and honk. And I'm in Nashville. When people tooted at you, you would just wave. and. And, but you didn't do that. You protected yourself. So you put up this wall in Washington, D.C., because now I'm a young lady who is living away from home and they're predators. And this, this is what I've been told. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh. So all of this was going through my head when you said that. And so I ditched the overalls. I remember getting pumps that I remember these the first nude pair of pumps that I bought. And I'm walking around campus. My feet are hurting. And I'm like, they're all marked up from gravel. I'm like, is this what I'm supposed to be wearing? There were scarves, like a silk scarf. I'm like, this is not me. So that didn't last too long, but it it did last a good part of my freshman year until I sort of settled into my thing. Yeah, it's amazing how much we can sort of like snap back into those modes. Um, but you did say Lindsay's thing. I know you end up studying accounting also when you're there, but it, but it sounds like you didn't study accounting because you're like, accounting is awesome. You studied it because you happened to like have a teacher that you thought was pretty awesome like earlier. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll roll with that. 
Yeah, I wanted to go to Boston University and study theater. I wanted to go to a conservatory and I because I thought that was going to be my life. And when I didn't get accepted, I'm like, wait, what? I didn't get accepted? And they're like, you can stay here and do something else. I'm like, no, I was only going to Boston for theater. And so my sister was going to Howard and I just said, all right, I'll just go to Howard University. I didn't think about, oh, I have to get accepted. I'm like, of course I'm going to get accepted. You know, I had a I had to apply and everything. I don't think I applied anywhere else. And luckily they accepted me. That would have been such a, such a bash to the ego. And I really liked my accounting teacher in high school. And so I said, okay, I'll major in accounting. It was really like, what's second? What's next? Okay. Accounting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I obviously had the aptitude for it, but I I really, and it's, you know, what's so funny, Jonathan, I was telling this story um, in an interview years ago and a friend of mine who was at Boston university and who was from Nashville, she said, I'm listening to you tell this story. And that's actually not true. I'm like, what part of it isn't true that I didn't get accepted into Boston into BU. She was like, no, you actually, the head, the Dean of the school didn't think that people should major in theater as undergrads. And he was trying to discourage you because your grades were so good that he was trying to put you into another space. And I'm like, and I didn't get that at all. I didn't, I mean, I was a really good student. All I knew, I want to do theater. And, but when people saw my grades, they were like, you should not do theater. (laughs) You should do something else. And, um, but I carried that for decades thinking of that rejection because of theater. That's amazing. So wait, the dean of your, of BU or of, 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 your, BU, of your high school? Of BU. So literally looked at your grades. He's like, how bizarre is that, that the head of a school for a thing that you love is looking at you and saying, this is not worthy of somebody with like the academic capacity that you have. Like making I, a judgment call at, right. uh, on that level. Right. And not even thinking about the love. And, and, this dean, she was saying, thought that you could do a master's in theater, but you should be living your life. It's like when you go to get a um, MBA, they're like work two years and then come and get your MBA because you need experience in the world before you come to like a graduate program. And I guess he thought for theater, you should not, he didn't think that people should go straight from high school into theater. So he made that judgment call. And when she said that to me, I was like, wait, what? It, it sort of shifted. And then I forget that that was the conversation that we had. We just had this conversation two years ago. And um, I'm still, I still have my version of the story in my head of rejection. Yeah. I'm, but also it's sort of like this really interesting role of a stranger deciding they know what's best for you. And it's not like they were rejecting every other person who wanted to study theater undergrad. They were saying yes, but for some reason they're like, if you have, like, if if you're you and you have the academic chops that you have, then I'm going to play the role of your parent effectively. Mm-hmm. But I also have the power to just completely reject you at the same time, um, rather than just guide you, which is um, interesting. Is one word? Yeah, it, it's kind of a butterfly effect, isn't it? Yeah. You know, because it was an about face to me. I, I mean, Howard has an amazing fine arts program, mm-hmm. but I didn't go that route. Once I was rejected in theater, I was like, let me go like the complete opposite, which was accounting. Yeah. So you, you end up studying accounting um, and then going out into the world, do the CPA exam also, mm-hmm. I guess, which is... Yep. A really fun experience for what I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> a 19 and a half hour exam. Yes. Four parts. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of brutal. Um, and then you go out and you practice for a couple of years at, you know, so you land out of school, you land the job that everybody wants. If you're going into accounting, it's one of the giant firms, you know, like prestige, power, decent salary. You're going yep. out and doing this thing. And then a couple of years in, it's just not working. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. I... I was so afraid of being 40 and hating my job. I think that was the biggest fear. 
I was at an audit. I'm looking on at this accountant, fold a piece of paper and lining up the corners. And I was like, oh my God, that can't be me. I, I was really afraid of being unhappy. That was, that was my biggest fear. Yeah. I can so relate to that. I, uh, so I have a very past life as a lawyer and I took the bar, you know, like did the, mm -hmm. did the hard thing, went out, practiced for four or five years. My wake up call was, was literally being hospitalized from my body melting down from the stress. And it took me a year to sort of, you know, eventually say, okay, I'm out. But my curiosity is, you know, you were, so you practiced for what, two, three years, something like that? Two years. And, then, and I know that stress. I know that stress of not sleeping, of obsessing over the job, of coming home. I, I as soon as you said the stress, I'm like, oh, luck, luckily I left before five years because that may have been me. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, it's something that you just incorporate into it, especially when you're working for, I, I ended up eventually working for a really large law firm and you're working for like one of the giants at the time in accounting. Mm -hmm. There's an assumption that your life will be theirs, you know, especially Correct. in the early days. It's just the way it is. Yep. And as a kid coming out of college, you're like making good money. You're like, all right, whatever. I'll deal with this for a while. I, I can hack it. But then the lived experience, you're like, oh, wow, this this is kind of brutalizing. And, and, and I think for both you and I, you know, it may, it, it may have been different. If you're somebody who had a passion, who like was just innately drawn to accounting or law, you're probably like, right, this, I can offset what I'm feeling with this love of this thing that I'm doing. But if, if you're wired like us, it's like, no, every, every day that you're doing something that you know you don't want to be doing, it's just, you know, like it, it gets worse and worse. Right, right. 100%. So you make the logical next move when you leave there. Yeah. <laughs> very like logical. Next move, right? And you decide <laughs> to be a runway model in Europe. You know, there were some girls going to Paris. I'm like, uh, you know what? I'm, hold on. Wait up for me. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to come with you. And actually, I didn't even go to Paris with these girls. It was just the idea was planted by these girls that I didn't know that well. And um, I quit my job two weeks after I saw the accountant fold in the paper. And I just said, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I can't do this. And there happened to be a woman there who was on a tour of duty from France. And I took French for, I mean, a couple of weeks, learned 10 words. And that, that was, I was armed with 10 words of French when I, when I went to Paris, but I had one telephone number who was the friend of a friend of a friend of someone who knew my mother. And uh, I didn't even know this girl. And I, I sort of bummed around the city for a week before I called her. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a B.O. strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, 
wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere red beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. When you get there, I mean... There's another curiosity in mind, which is like when you walk out of this job, were you aware of the fact that you were also walking out of the profession that you had studied, trained for, been licensed for, or were you just like, you know what, that gig wasn't right for me. Let me take a breather so I can get my head straight and figure out my next move. Or were you just like, no, like I, I'm clear I'm done. I knew I was done. I knew that that was the thing that I didn't want to do. And what I wanted to do, eventually, I didn't know. I remember turning to my mom and saying, when I get that CPA certificate, that will hang up in your house. I have done everything for you. And now from this point forward, it really has to be about me and my happiness. But I knew I was done with accounting. I knew once I walked out that door, I couldn't come back. And and interestingly enough, people were saying to me, I can't believe you're leaving a good job. They didn't say, I can't believe like that you weren't happy. They went to the practical side of how is it that you're leaving a good job? I feel like I'm physically dying, (laughs) you know, not to be dramatic, but I really thought that my essence was dying. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. People, I think, asked, how can you work so hard, give up so much, you know, like invest so much and then leave it all behind, especially when so many other people see themselves really yearning to be in that same position that you're Mm -hmm. saying no to rather than like the flip side question is, which I kept defaulting to, and and it sounds like you kind of did also, how can I justify giving up the next 40, 50 working years of my life based on what's happened in the last like three, four, five, you know, when you reframe the question that way, the answers are just profoundly different. 100%, but it also, and, and, Fast forwarding to my husband, I've spoken to so many people and tried to counsel them to quit their jobs. <laughs> it sounds really terrible because <laughs> I'm like, do you love this? What is it that you do? You imagine yourself here when you imagine yourself 10 years from now and you're doing this job. Does it make you happy or does it make you want to run? Does it make you feel kind of low and down? And I said, if it makes you feel low and down, what else would you like to be doing? That's where you should spend your time sort of figuring out. Uh, And for three years, I talked to my husband. I I mean, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had the support and flexibility to do a job in New York that was away from our home. But um, I'm like, okay, it's your turn. And I was just like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Like a job, like, what do you want to (laughs) do? And it took three years for him to finally quit his job as an attorney. He worked for um, for the FDA and then he decided yoga was his thing and he's so happy. And that was, that was such a win. I mean, we have a totally different life to be with someone who loves what they're doing and they're not relying on your happiness about what you're doing. Everybody's living their own joy. It is so freeing and wonderful. Yeah, it's sort of the bedrock of everything, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, instead of everything, just sort of like 
codependence and codependence layered on top of each other. It's sort of like, like we're jamming, we're doing our own thing and we're independently happy. And that's how we end up being mutually happy together. Yes. But that doesn't always, you know, that, that's, that wisdom doesn't always drop all that easily or readily. Um, I'm also curious about something else. So we're about the same age, I think. And so when I leave the law, you know, like I'm a white guy leaving this professional life. There's no script running in my head that says, consider your whiteness in making this decision. Uh. When you're a young black woman who's leaving this field of accounting, I'm wondering whether there's any script in your head that says to consider that as part of the equation at all. Um, interestingly enough, I felt black at that accounting firm. <laughs> I mean, out of 50 people, I was the black girl. And and then came another person. Like everybody would come up to me, Oh, you must be Carla. I'm like, uh, and out of like a hundred people, and out of a hundred white people, who are you? I mean, I remember thinking that. I mean, I may I may have said it once or twice, but I felt like an other. So, I mean, I went from being at Howard. So I went from Nashville to being at Howard. Now I'm in Tampa, Florida. Um, there weren't a lot of me around and I, I befriended a lot of other professional blacks, but I didn't work with them. So I always felt, I mean, I have to say, I mean, granted, that was a chip on my shoulder, but I felt like an other. So when I was leaving and I'm going to Paris, I mean, I also was thinking Josephine Baker went to Paris. You know, (laughs) there were other blacks who went to Paris. And so I could be myself there and be accepted as an artist. So I don't know if I actually thought about my race when I left. I didn't lead with that. It may have been in the back of my head. Also, when I when I went there, there was a huge community of black models. So the um, the socialization happened on Sundays, which was this woman who was just this big black woman, dark skin from Memphis, Tennessee. Her name was Elaine. She did hair and she had these Sunday suppers that reminded me of my granny's Sunday supper. So that was also a connection for me and a sense of comfort and groundedness. So if I if I did feel black in Paris, it was everything that that lifted me up and buoyed me. Mm -hmm. It sounds like that those Sunday dinners also were uh, not just sort of like that sense of normalization and like you said, like buoying, but also a reconnection with food, a reconnection with Uh with not just like, you know, the process of eating, but what happens around food, you know, like what happens with the the feeling that you get, the community and communion that forms around it, um, which eventually in a relatively short period of time turned into something bigger and then brought you back to DC where you're like, let me see where this interest is going to take me. Yes. And in hindsight, when I think of every life changing thing that happened to me, it was around food. And it was only being away from it and looking back. Um, So it was in Paris. It was, um, and then when I came back, I started a lunch delivery service as a fluke. It was here. It it started, I mean, even with Top Chef, when that's when I sort of fell in love again with my, my culture. People saw me as the person who did comfort food. And it was actually the viewers who helped me see that that's what I was gravitating toward. It was all of the food from my grandmother's Sunday suppers. And that was the grounding point. That was my, um, eventually, I comfort foods. But then my last cookbook, Soul Food, a lot of the things that I was running away from, I found comfort in the food that I was having at my grandmother's table. Yeah, because, I mean, you mentioned Top Chef. You know, so you end up there on season five. But there's a really big window between the time that you come back to D.C. and you start doing the lunch service, which kind of happens almost as a fluke. But then you're like all in and you're building this. And then there's, what, 12, 13, 14 years of catering, restaurants, culinary school. In between that time and the time where you land on Top Chef, you know, like well over a decade later, where you're developing your chops, you're learning the industry, you're learning everything. But it also sounds like during that whole season, 
you know, it's interesting to hear you say Top Chef was the thing that kind of brought you back to that comfort food. Whereas the whole time in between, you describe yourself as running from it. Like, what's the why? Um, so when I was doing the lunch delivery service, I was doing comfort food. I would do soups and sandwiches and breads and biscuits. And then I go to where I was getting, and in doing that, I was I was self-taught. So I was teaching myself through cookbooks and I had the practical experience of actually cooking, but I didn't have theory. Then I go to culinary school, a French culinary school, Academy de Cuisine in Maryland. That's when I got the theory on top of my practical experience. And that's when I learned French food and, and all of the, the, the technical way of doing things. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And I think I turned away from my culture that I took for granted to doing fancy food, to wanting to be accepted or learned. <laughs> and I didn't want to be known as a black cook because I thought that that meant soul food, that meant the Sunday suppers that I didn't necessarily, I appreciated eating them, but I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a black cook and doing that food. And so I turned away from it. And it was only back to, I mean, and when you said like Top Chef, I was 42 when I went on Top Chef. So I was 30 when I went to culinary school. I was 25 when I started a lunch delivery service. So it was like 18 years or so that I'd been cooking and trying to figure out who I was through food. So it it really wasn't until I started uh, my restaurant and where I said, I, 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 I love being black and I love this food. And what turned my my head or my perception or my thoughts around that or my self-love, whatever you want to call it, was when I was approached about being the ambassador of Sweet Home Cafe at the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. And it was the work that Jessica Harris had done. And she was like, this is the influence of Black cooks all over the country. And I was like, whoa. And it was as if somebody was speaking to me for the first time, like why we should be proud of our food and what we had contributed. And you don't get that in culinary school. I, I get what the French had contributed, <laughs> but I, not what Black people had contributed. And as a, a Black cook, that that meant so much to me. And I was like, whoa, I have a lot of catching up to do, a lot of studying to do, a lot of reading. And so that was the turning point there, too. Yeah. So it's sort of like the confluence of you putting in the years, then yeah. you landing on Top Chef, then this other experience all coming together, kind of overlapping a bit towards like the, the end there. And also it sounds like that to a certain extent, it's funny from the outside looking in at Top Chef, you know, if you look back at the season, it seems like the show is incredibly fun and incredibly stressful at the same time. Yes. So like, wh where do we all go when we're starting to lose our minds a little bit? Like, what's the comfort thing? You know, like, can we go back to the food that we know very often? And And it also seems like when you turned to that in a public way, it was celebrated and people said more. And so you reached this, this sort of like um, a reunion, <laughs> you uh -huh. know, with this food that was a part of your past and also just has this really, really rich history. And, and, and then instead of being afraid of being pigeonholed into being this one person, you're like, no, this is amazing. This is actually not, a, it's, this is not a pigeonhole. It's not a constraint. You know, it's it's a rich mind to vein and then to build around and then to offer out. Part of, I, I know sort of like your lens on food is, is cooking is love. And it sounds like, you know, that is the central ethos underneath all of this too. It sounds so beautiful when you say it so poetically. <laughs> I, 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 can I have this on tape? I'm going to listen it, listening to it at night. <laughs> yeah, I mean... um, you know, after Top Chef, it launches you into the public side in a massive way, both as a chef and also as a personality. You know, like people kind of fall in love with you because you're an awesome human being and it shows really well on screen. And that leads to you being more and more and more and more public, um, mm -hmm. but also having a platform to actually say, this is what I believe and this is what I want to share with the world. Being this sort of like on the border of introvert, extrovert, as you 
become more and more and more public and people want more from you and also expect a certain thing or and don't expect a certain thing from you as you sort of like live in a brighter and brighter light i'm curious how that lands with you because you're still doing it this is a, a big you know you are absolutely in the media front and center and i'm wondering just on a personal level how how that is with you how that, how how you feel with that you know um it it's really important for the platform to mean something like what do i do with this platform and what nonprofits do i work with what projects do i say yes to and and i have i have a, a checklist and so what keeps me grounded and wanting to do this and be in the public eye is to have passion about the reason that i'm doing it so on the chew, it was, um, I heard from so many people, oh my gosh, it's so great to see a black woman, you know, on daytime in food, um, talking about our food. And so I have to show up authentically my quirky self eating this food, knowing that if I am not there, who is going to be talking about my experience that I'm sharing with so many people. So that gets me through, um, when I am still in the public, and even this summer in the, with the pandemic, you know, and I started this recess, I'm like, there has to be so many people out there who are stressed and wondering which way to turn and, and, and they don't pivot as easily. And, and somebody who pivots easily, I was stressed. So I'm like, how do we bring the joy when everything is telling us we should not be joyful? And so Part of it is my stubbornness, which I think protects me, but I, I go into that uncomfortable feeling. It's like, I've got to get out of this thing. I've got to get out of this space. And there has to be other people like me. And I'm going to go back just really quickly, like to Top Chef. I don't drink. And so when somebody said, oh, do you want to make a cocktail? I'm like, it'll have to be a mocktail. Because I'm always thinking, however I feel, whatever I'm doing, there is somebody else who is thinking like me, and I am talking to those people. And that gives me comfort and makes me feel less awkward. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I guess also it's it takes a little time to get there sometimes. Uh -huh. And in the food industry, um, my wife was in the, the restaurant industry in New York for uh, a decade. So we know the industry fairly well. It is a brutal, brutally hard industry yes. you know the food every part of it catering restaurant whatever it may be it's just a really 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 tough you get knocked around a lot you work insane hours mm -hmm. um sometimes things work really really well sometimes they absolutely implode and then they implode into the implosion and then they fall apart after that and you know i i feel like there's a, there's an interesting analogy to media because sometimes that happens also but when it happens and you have this public platform you know, like the, the blessing is that you have the ability to do incredible things with it. And the razor's edge is also that when things don't work, you can't just process it internally. Well, you, you can, but people are going to have all sorts of expectations about how that should be processed, how it should make you feel. Um, so you're out there humming along, you know, like doing phenomenally media. You're co-hosting the two, you're doing these specials. And then you, one of the things that you want to do is actually own a restaurant, you know, cause kind of like one of the few things in the space that you hadn't done yet on that level. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> so, so Brooklyn, what was it? 2015, 2016? Yeah. 2016 to 2017, one year. It took us longer to plan the restaurant and get it built than it actually survived. And I didn't want, I didn't want a restaurant. I, I was just browbeaten for three years uh, with my partners. Like, you know, let's do a restaurant. Let's do I'm like, why would I want to do a restaurant? I had all the right reasons for not wanting to do a restaurant. And um, so I said, yes. And, <laughs> um, and it, it was a great experience. And, and actually it turned out that I loved it. I loved the process of, of learning what food I wanted to serve the feeling of the restaurant, the people that I wanted there, all of that was really great. It's just that, you know, it's incredibly hard in terms of money. If anything goes wrong, you know, we had an, uh, an electrical fire and we were shut down for a month. So when this pandemic happened and it is ongoing, I'm like a month took our business out. 
So what do you think six months is going to do to a small business? I, I just, I feel for them so much and I get it. I, I, and you know, we never were the same and that was only a month. And when people are like, oh, these businesses are going to come back. No, no. The, the, I mean, it's a 95% chance that they won't unless they have the support and unless they have funds that are going to help them. And it is so hard. Like, what do your employees do? How do you, you know, looking at your employees and you want to keep them on and you don't have the business to keep them on. You know, I'm just living through all of that, you know, and this pandemic brought back all of those feelings of when everybody's looking at you and wanting this paycheck. So it's incredibly hard. Interestingly enough, after it was all over and I actually wrote this um, speech very publicly um, about, you know, when you crash and burn publicly, <laughs> you know, with the restaurant, because nobody talks about it, you know, and I felt like, again, here I was in the public eye. And, and I remember giving that speech and, you know, and tears would flare up. But I was like, I'm going to push through because I want you all to know the real deal. The one thing that keeps me in the public eye authentically is to let people truly know what I am going through. I don't try to whitewash it. I don't try to make it seem better than it is like, oh yeah, it's great. And I'm great. No, I'm struggling. <laughs> and it's, it's going to help somebody because I'm talking to that person who's been through the same thing that I'm going through. Yeah. I mean, I think it also sets, it allows people to set some of their own more realistic expectations. So it's not that, you know, Wow, everyone's succeeding but me. What's wrong with me? Right. It's like, you know, no, you know what? I said yes to a hard thing where just a part of the process is is the majority of people fail, you know, which is the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. Was it like 80, 90% of restaurants fail in five yeah. years, even in the best of times? Mm -hmm. You know, like I took that as when you when you went and did that, like in a very public way. I'm like, that was really powerful because you're you're essentially giving permission to people who have this love who like there's something in them that says i want to do this i want to try it and th but they're terrified of what happens if i don't succeed to say well you may not and i'm on tv right. <laughs> i'm telling you i'm on tv i have this platform i'm still failing you guys so think about it so there's there's no safety net there is no easy route for anybody yeah yeah i i think it was, i thought it was really really powerful um and that was also really powerful to see that you know like what did you do when you woke up the next morning you showed up and you went to work. Yep. You know, it's sort of like what's next rather than, okay, e everything is over. You know, it's sort of like, okay, process it. There's grief. There's for sure loss, but mm -hmm. life goes on. And and I think that's, it seems like this central thing about you. It's like you wake up the next day and you're like, it's not a delusional thing where you're like, oh, that never happened. You're like, no, that was real. That sucked. But today's today. Like, what do I do now? Yep. Yeah. I mean, one foot in front of the other. The, the thing is that I know and the thing that I live by is every single lesson that I have had is going to take me to the next thing. And as much as I don't want to feel, I mean, the heart, the, the chew is incredibly hard for me um, in learning how to host. But I'm like, OK, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to embrace it. And the one thing that Top Chef taught me was. I can be comfortable with the uncomfortable just because I'm uncomfortable and it doesn't mean that I can't feel it and keep going on. I know that I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to take the next step. I may be crying. I may be dragging through, but I know that I'm going to be in a better place when I get to that next step than where I am now. Yeah. Along the way, you know, so you, you end up basically recovering. You, you, you're, you're still doing media the whole time. You're still out there processing, yeah. processing internally. Um, and also in, in a public way. And also, I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing also because I, I think sometimes somebody will look at somebody in the media and say, the only way that you actually get to do the things that you do and to be the person you are and have the, the spotlight and the platform is to be perpetually successful rather than to be perpetually real. Mm -hmm. And so I think it sends a really interesting, different message, which goes back to like, 12 years old, right? Yes. <laughs> that yeah. thing that you were told in theater class and like circling back and, and fundamentally being the thing that fuels you. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Dare to be you, dare to be different. Yeah. But most of all, dare to be you. Yeah. I also, from what I understand, 
on uh so Gretchen Rubin is a friend of mine and I know you're familiar with her four tendencies ah. how we meet our own and others expectations and I I do believe you're a rebel according to uh, oh 100% right which kind 100%. of goes along with everything we're talking about it's sort of like <laughs> hey you got an expectation for me no Right, right, right. I love talking to Gretchen and my husband uh, was a big fan. And when I when I was interviewing her and she's like, like I'm going to tell you how the story ends. I'm like, you get me. So I yes, correct. Yes. I don't know if there was a question there, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> I no, love I, her so much. It, it's just like it goes along with everything you're talking about, because it, it's kind of like that you live in a world where expectations, other people's expectations, but also your own expectations mm -hmm. kind of don't matter. In fact, the more solid they are, the more you don't want nothing to do with them, Yeah, which is a fascinating way to live, which seems to have brought you incredible opportunity that you have just completely embraced. But at the same time, rebels, and I know this from conversations with Gretchen over the years and when she was like working on a lot of this stuff, they can also be some of the toughest people to be around and also you know in terms of building things with the toughest people to collaborate with and to work with and what's fascinating is from the outside looking in that doesn't seem like your mo um i'm a great collaborator i i think i am incredibly tough i have to say i i know i'm tough on my team but rather than looking at my team like a pyramid or a triangle, I look at us as a box and I expect us all to move up together. So I really push my team. Um, I will never ask anybody to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So I, um, I think I have an incredible work ethic. I think that just comes from our age. I mean, I'm, I'm 56. So back in the day, I mean, you know, your, your parents were from the depression. So you know, yeah, just incredible work ethic. And so um, I'm pretty tough, I would say. Yeah. And, and nobody is here to, de to defend them. So I, 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 I'm, I'm channeling my assistant who's like, yes, she's incredibly tough. But I'm also incredibly generous when I'm working with people. I'm generous with giving them credit for their input and honoring them and wanting to, them to be acknowledged for that as well. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're, you, you know, while you say you may be tough on those around you, it sounds like you're also tough on their behalf. Yes. 100%. Yes. Yeah. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You, um, so you and I are also, you, you have, have had a long career at this point in the media, largely in front of camera. And more recently, um, you jump into this world of podcasting with your own podcast, um, Say Yes, which is really, you know, it's the embodiment of your philosophy, mm -hmm. which we've kind of like, we've talked about, but we haven't really named it. You, you literally like, you have this very discreet philosophy. I do. And my mantra is say yes 
adventure follows, then growth. And sometimes we stop our growth by saying no. And this this whole thing that I, um, this mantra is about, I don't know, about seven years old or so. Somebody had asked me, they were doing a book on six words of advice. And I didn't, I really wanted something that meant something to me. And I'm like, how do I live my life? How do I live my life? You know, what, what would I say to a young person? And those were the six words. Say yes, adventure follows, then growth. Yeah. I love that you didn't say success follows. Oh, no. Because that's not what it's about. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, yes, it would be nice, but that's, that's sort of like not the, that's not the right middle piece. <laughs> it's not the point, is it? It's really not the point. And what is success? It's all relative. For me, success could be not throwing up when I go on stage, <laughs> right? It could be just saying and, and showing up and being present at that time. I mean, it's all relative. And I think that all different kinds of success should be validated and honored and not what the quote unquote successful people whom, whom we think are successful. Because then when we find when we have these successful people and then behind the curtain, we're like, oh, oh, that really? That's you? So I never want to be that person. I never want to be the person who takes off their makeup and like, oh, that's what you look like. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in, in life, I think, you know, so often when we have the chance to actually um, zoom the lens out and say, what, like, what does it really mean to live a good life? You know, like what, what are the elements of that? You know, how do, what, what does success look like when we get to define that in our own terms and not just in, I, you know, I feel like success is always used in the context of business, of work. Mm. You know, like you're a successful person when you achieve this business metric or this income metric rather than like, I actually, I, I don't reject the word success, but I feel like we define it in this one really narrow context. We define it almost entirely in the context of power, money, and prestige. Mm-hmm. And what about life? That's, right. what, that's why this podcast exists. <laughs> Yes. What about life? I, I really feel like a lot of people don't define it because they take for granted what is their own success. And I feel like they're not living up to why they are here. You know, like, why are you actually here on this earth plane and what are you here to do? And, and, and through a lot of introspection and probably in spirituality, I want to do the thing that I am here and meant to do. And have you ever, have you ever had a moment when you're so present that everything slows down and you are just like living in that moment? Yeah, many times, but you know, it's funny that the thing that immediately comes to mind is something that Nobody else around would notice. Nobody else would feel as it wasn't this big, profound, earth-shaking thing that changed the direction of my life. It's me sitting across the table from my daughter on a sunny afternoon while she does her homework and just just watching her, not in a creepy way, mm-hmm. but just being full, you know, fully present and just being like, oh my God, this is grace. Yeah. Yeah. The first time that I felt that was, it was um, Christmas Eve, midnight mass, and I was singing a song and I felt that my voice was just resonating throughout my entire body. I think I was, uh, I don't know, maybe I was nine or 10, but I just felt, I was like, oh my gosh, I felt like there were angels in my body. And... Another time, and there there were many times, but another time that I felt that almost like the 90 mile per hour baseball slowing down coming at you was when I was hosting the James Beard Awards and I was running on stage and giving all these chefs a high five. And I said, "Uh oh, I'm about to fall. (laughs) (laughs) And I I remember thinking, I said, how do I want to fall? And I and all of these thoughts were coming to me engage the core, make it big. <laughs> <laughs> All of those thoughts. 
So as I, I mean, when you watch the video, I am like flat out, like flying through the sky. Like, like I take flight, like my feet are off the ground, both of them. And I decide to roll and windmill my feet. And the gentlemen are all trying to help me, but I'm like rolling away from them. <laughs> uh, and I become probably like Jerry Lewis because I love physical comedy. And, and then I got up and I said, that means the show's going to be amazing. And everybody's looking at me like, oh my God, like what just happened? And I ran down stage and I said, you all know that shit was funny. And then I laughed. I was able to laugh at it because it was so awesome. But people were like, oh my God, I had the best time. I mean, just being completely present in that moment made it so great for me. Yeah, I think that's what it really comes down to so often, right? Is is Ram Das be here now? Yeah, you know, it's sort of like everything that we need to know we have known for generations and generations and generations, and yet we just keep running from it. But in those moments, like you just described, where you, it's not even like you intentionally drop into it, but you just kind of like for a heartbeat, you become aware that you're in it. You're like, yeah, and then you own it. You, yeah, it's just like that's it. Right. <laughs> mhm. Mm mhm. Mm That's yeah. it. Um, this feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So I'm, yeah, we're we're hanging out here in this um this container of good life project. So if I offer up this phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To do what your heart wants to do, but to allow yourself to ask the question and listen for the answer. That's the good life. Yeah. Mm. It's worked for me up to this point. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.